The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, Spidey-Dude.com. And I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at Patreon.com slash Network, Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, and Phoenician. Thank you for your support. And if you want to get the show, this show earlier, check it out there, as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber. There will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon. But before I turn it over to our hosts, I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs, such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogan Rider Variety Hour, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a Spectacular Radio, a Spectacular Spider-Man related show that starred a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter at Spidey Dude Radio and this show at From Erie, and feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher such as apple Podcasts, spotify podcast iHeartRadio radio podcasts amazon audible as well as google podcasts it helps us raise our vis- visibility and like share and subscribe for more at spidey dude network youtube.com slash spidey dude network also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as I mentioned the Twitter threads, but also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Network, as well as Instagram, if you like Instagram, instagram.com slash Network. With that out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer L. Anderson and Greg Bashansky. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Eerie, our last show for the year 2022, and coincidentally, our last show for City of Stone. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and rejoining me as usual is my partner in crime, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. And we're very pleased to welcome back to the show the producer and art director and the director of this episode, Mr. Frank Parr. Hello, everyone. And back as usual is the co-creator, supervising producer and of the first two seasons and writer of the SLG and new hit Dynamite comic book, Mr. Greg Wiseman. You just can't get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that might be the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It, it definitely is the other way around. So far, reception to the first issue of Gargoyle seems to be, it's going really well. My favorite review so far was one written by an individual who didn't watch the show back when it was on because he was quote-unquote too old for cartoons and he had his assumptions about what it was. He checked this out and it intrigued him. He thought it was a good entry point for him and it made him also want to go back and rewatch the series. Awesome. Gotta like that. 
He's got to love hooking in fresh meat. Been seeing quite yeah. a bit of that. So, <laughs> Greg, you did your job with issue one. I know you were a little concerned if that would be effective, but it's so, but so far so good. Yeah, I feel uh, uh, a little better now. Uh, now that it's out, it's less so like, oh my god, what happens when it comes out? Well, it came out, and the world did end, and everyone seems pretty happy. So I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, you got to view it as act one of, a of a three act episode, basically. It's, uh, it's just getting the ball rolling here. We're reintroducing characters and introducing characters to a new audience. And, um, and, uh, so I'm pretty happy with the response to it. It's been, uh, uh, you know, I, I try not to get too hyped about positive reviews because if I take the positive reviews too seriously, shouldn't I also take the negative reviews seriously? And I don't want to take the negative reviews seriously. So um, that's a dilemma. Um, but I haven't seen any negative reviews yet, so I'm good. <laughs> um, it's always a positive sign. Yeah, so uh, as long as that lasts, I'm feeling pretty, pretty cheerful. Uh, it's a good time to call. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Frank, we talked about this with you a little bit before we started recording, but we love that Wolverine versus Goliath storyboard you did, and we're looking forward to the second part. Well, I, I hope you don't have to wait too long for that. But, uh, but we'll, we'll say, most of it is done. It's just clean up and, and little bits and pieces. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's actually kind of fun going back and drawing Goliath like that. Uh, you know, I thought it was kind of a fun matchup, but you know, it's a match, it's a it's a matchup, non-matchup. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, we really but enjoyed it for sure. Definitely, I thought it'd be a nice little surprise. Oh, it was, it was to darken the mood a little bit unfortunately and uh he did not work on gargoyles but i feel that it's important that we pay a little bit of tribute to the late kevin conroy he would as most of you know he was the voice of batman and batman the animated series several video games he voiced the character for decades and he was a major part of a series that elevated animation to a place where a show like gargoyles could thrive and from all accounts i've never met the man i've seen the man but i hear he was a great person to work with and just a great individual in general you, you know that line where people you know when you watch the movies and the criminals are cornered and out of the shadows you know uh, the, the shape says i am batman well that was that was him he was batman you know, there have been a lot of actors play the role, but they've never really personified uh, the spirit, the substance of the characters as well as he did. Uh, uh, it was kind of a loss. Uh, you know, I, I, I haven't. He will be missed for sure. You know, I, I haven't worked with him since since Batman. You know, that he left a lasting impression on me. Uh, 
you know, in those days when we were putting that show together, we would always have the most wonderful actors come in, and it kind of spoiled me. Uh, of course, we did the same thing with with Gargoyles. You know, we were kind of spoiled with a lot of the acting talent. But on Batman, uh, you know, that was my first time in there. Uh, you know, meeting these guys and you know, this these. A level of talent that was there, and uh, uh, you know, Kevin was, you, you know, I mean, he uh, he was a presence in the studio. Uh, he was a super guy, great to work with, uh, very personable. Uh, could never say really enough good things about the man. I mean, I mean, he was physically an imposing guy. He could have played Batman, you know, in live action. I mean, he was he was very fit. And he did that time before. All that, he did, you know, and uh, he did. He, he played the uh, uh, the older Bruce Wayne, in CW. Yes, uh, but yeah, it's 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 you know, I, I, I wish that I had been able to work with him more because he really was a uh, uh, a really great talent and just a great person overall. Yeah, I never worked with yeah, Kevin um, myself, but uh, you know, I I met him. I did a couple panels with him at, at various conventions, and um, just as I mean, obviously, I know his talent from what seeing it, you know, on TV and stuff. But uh, I uh, he was also a super nice guy, even to you know perfect stranger like me. Um, so likewise, I have nothing but good things to say. He was, uh, really just terrific guy. And he was Batman, the definitive Batman, as far as I'm concerned. He was Batman. And, uh, yeah. Jen, you have anything you want to say? No. (laughs) All right. We'll, uh, dedicate this recording to his memory May he rest in peace, rest in power, and we will move on to um, City of Stone. Terry, I've been thinking about something you once told me, and you were wrong. It's not Batman that makes you worthwhile. It's the other way around. Never tell yourself anything different. Frank, uh, at this point, you had directed 12 episodes in a row. Do you, do you have any memories of doing that and working on this four-parter specifically? Um, well, you know, it's... it's uh, I can't... It, again, it's, it, it, this has been quite a while. I do remember I didn't get a lot of sleep, and I was, I was quite the irritable <laughs> bastard uh, a good portion of the time. You know, I, I I just had a lot of you know. Say I directed a lot of it. I you know I we had a very talented storyboard crew, which makes such things a lot easier than what you would think it does. Uh, so I, we were very fortunate in, in getting a lot of the people on the show that we did, particularly with with this. I was you know we got a lot of good uh, guys from from the Batman series helping us out. Uh, some others from the X in the animated series, uh, because they love these kinds of 
of shows where it's character dominated over action dominance. You know, that's the thing that, you know, of course, Greg does so well is his, uh, his, his characters, his people, you know, they, they feel real. And so that kind of helps to inspire you to, uh, you know, put these things together uh, in the way that we do. You know, it, it makes it a lot of fun, too. It's hard. It's harder than just normally, but it's, it's rewarding, you know, to bring these characters to life in the way that we did on Gargoyles. And I think uh, we were quite successful on that. And this show in particular is, you know, is very special because it's, you know, it's owned by Demona. Uh, we learn everything, almost everything there is to know about Demona. We, we learn and, you know, why the way she is and, uh, her villainy and uh, her refusal to accept responsibility that leads up to these kinds of tragedies. So, like I said, there's a lot of stuff loaded in these 22-minute episodes. Danger, Greg. Scripts are too long. <laughs> <laughs> but we solved that because we would always go, if, if he didn't do that, this would have been a three-part episode instead of a four-part episode. <laughs> so that's a good thing, is that when we had these issues, we could always find a really cool way to resolve them. Yeah, I mean, you know, we tried to make each episode, not just in this far quarter, but in general, as dense as we could, um, consciously. But, you know, stuff in little stuff here, little stuff there. Um, but, yeah, you know, it becomes this thing where when we started, it was sort of like, oh, uh, this will be a three-parter. And then it's like, no, no, this is going to be a four-parter. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, that's what it became. I mean, there's just, there's just a point where we do, there's so many wonderful things being, being done that, you know, cutting them was painful, trying to cut these shows and, and cut out some of these things was just painful to do. So if we had the opportunity to make it longer, then obviously that's what we did. But sometimes Greg would have to add stuff to make that happen, too. He was always happy to do that. But I don't know. Were you happy to do that? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, extra work is extra work. I don't know how happy I was about extra work. But I, you know, we did hate cutting things. I mean, we really did hate cutting stuff. And, and, and so, you know, it was always... Uh, I mean, you know, this happened on the Awakening opening five-parter. You know, that started as four parts. And at some point, it's like, well, we either have to cut, you know, 15 minutes out of this thing or we have to add six, you know, or, or whatever, three. And I'd obviously much prefer to add three minutes and make it a five-parter than to cut 15, which would just be, just kill us. So I think it, the pacing works out better if you've got a little elbow room, a little breathing room. And so likewise on this, I mean, with this one, this one began um, development as it was going to be a direct-to-DVD movie. And then I think we talked about this on an earlier podcast, but Gary rejected the story, not um, not for uh, not because he didn't like it, but just because he didn't think 
it focused enough on the heroes. It was too much about the villains, uh, specifically Demona and Macbeth and their backstories. And he's like, that's not a good first movie for us. Um, and, uh, I said, well, can we still do it as episodes? He said, yeah, sure. That's fine. Um, but while we were developing it as a movie, I got word from, um, what was then called Disney, um, video, multi-video, video, uh, home video, which now is home entertainment because, you know, people don't watch videos as much as they used to, I guess. Um, <laughs> ye oldie video. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and they said that from a timing standpoint, uh, you know, it'd be more the equivalent of, you know, they needed it longer, you know, more like uh, 80 minutes than, um, 60 some, you know, and so once you say, oh, you want an 80 plus minute movie instead of a 60 plus minute movie, that meant to us that uh, once we switched over to being TV episodes, that there was no way it was going to fit the three. It would have to have to be four. And again, as usual, that was good for us um, because it allowed us to have enough elbow room to do justice to the story. Mm-hmm. I actually do have a question for Frank, especially when it comes to animation and character models. There's a shot that I've always noticed at the beginning of this. When Bronx pounces on Demona for a brief shot, her shirt is hanging from the other shoulder. So is this a common difficulty when the character has an asymmetrical design? That can be an issue. Uh, well, I got that actually right. Well, we, we try to keep it symmetrical, but sometimes that's not possible. So, yeah, I mean, there are always lots of little things. I, I was looking at the show over the other day, uh, and I see lots, a lot more than I ever did back then. I really do, you know, mistakes in, in the timing and just things that I, I, I can't excuse for, for, for missing. Uh, and sometimes you'd have to leave stuff in there because unlike today, your retakes back then, they'd have to re- redo all the, the ink and paint and the, uh, the camera work and everything. And today it's digital, you know, I mean, there are episodes of Avengers or it's Mightiest Heroes that I would just redo and fix and editing, you know, and you just late at night with Photoshop at times. But you couldn't do that back then. So if you had mistakes and you had a deadline that you had to get a show out by a certain date and you couldn't make it, then you had to live with uh, images that you might not otherwise would have liked in the show. So you got, the reason that you go with symmetry is because it's just easier on the artist. There's less likelihood of mistakes. But... Uh, Sometimes you take the chance. I, yeah, I think overall, with all the stuff we, uh, the heavy design emphasis we had on gargoyles, I think we did pretty well in avoiding a lot of that stuff. But uh, you know, it's, it wasn't a perfect production. Uh, no production's really perfect. You know, you're always going to find issues, even with all the nice fancy tools we have today. There's still going to be issues. It's just, it's just a very heavy, you know, art-heavy show. A lot of images going back, going by by at record speeds. So, yeah, 
thought that was kind of long-winded for a very simple question, wasn't it? <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> we like that. And then uh, talk about something that I think is They're definitely... Yeah, (laughs) that's true, too. (laughs) We love you, Greg. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about a scene that is very successful. We flash back to 1057 Scotland, a battle at... I know the outline calls it Burnham Wood, which I think is a nice nod to the prophecy in the play. And Frank, also kudos to your direction here, because the boarding, the music, the sound, the animation, the fog, it all comes together. It's very great. It's short, but it's very atmospheric. Well, the fog was there to cover, to discover the fact, hide the fact we didn't have a lot of animation, so we let the sound effects handle that. We have a lot of very heavy sound effects in this in this episode, you know, particularly in these battle sequences. Uh, I remember going over, oh, geez, there was a, a Disney animated sequence of uh, I can't remember what epi- what, what what movie it was in where they had an animated sequence of a medieval battle. And he took a lot of reference from, you know, a lot of ideas from that and, and supplied them with, with gargoyles to how to handle, you know, mass battles and, and things like that. So we we try to make it as epic as possible with what, what limited resources we had. You know, I look at it now and I get, you know, I, I, I do, I look at things, I just look at things like timing on it that things to be, you know, over, maybe a little overactive or maybe not acted out enough. And that's just part of the curse of not having the kind of schedule schedule that you'd like to have on these types of shows. Like I said, this, this is a very ambitious, uh, one of the more ambitious episodes, I think, because it contains so much information and uh, time periods shifts. That answer? <laughs> that's a great answer. But I run off topic again. But I love I love that scene though, that opening like like we just jump into the battle and I feel like you're you everything like is going so fast and going and but you're still so just drawn in by it. I actually have a one of the cells of Demona swinging out of the sky with the mace. Um but I and then and then she flat out kills a man. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's not like, on screen. He just knocked him out. He's screaming, and then he's not. <laughs> well, he you know, had a helmet geez. and a lot of bubble wrap. <laughs> <laughs> he dead. He he's dead. Of course, it wouldn't have been bubble wrap. It probably would have been um, some hair or something. <laughs> Something bubbly with Aaron, some bl- more of a bladder fill. <laughs> we are talking middle mid ages here, uh, but yeah, Demona swings swings her hammer a lot in this uh, this poor part. Yeah, but it definitely gets across. Like she's definitely a force to be reckoned with here. Well, she's always. I mean, that's Demona. Uh, that's that's why we love her. She's insane. Yeah. Shall we talk about that scene on the battlements of the castle between Demona and Macbeth? A very short scene, but probably the happiest we've ever seen her. And I'm including the flashbacks to Wyvern. Here she's swinging him around like he's a (laughs) ragdoll, but in a very affectionate way. Yeah, it's it's, it's a Demona we don't get we don't get to see a lot of. 
Yeah, she's very, you know, very happy at this point. In the old audio commentary that you did for the DVD release back in 2006-2005, Greg, I recall you saying on there, and you baited a lot of shippers at the time, that she was uh, giddy as a schoolgirl there, that she was a little bit in love with the guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, um, true. I think that she uh, has... Uh, you know, th- this has just been going so well. I mean, the thing that's, e- again, we talked about this a little last time, but I think it's easy to sort of forget because we jump from the flashback to the present and then to another flashback, which is years later. So unless you're doing the math, um, it's easy to kind of forget that, um, well, it's been 17 years. 17 years of peace and prosperity for humans and gargoyles alike. This is what Goliath dreamed of and Demona never thought really could happen. And it's happened for 17 years. That's a long damn time. You know, Um, certainly in the politics of a place like medieval Scotland, it's forever. And so, yeah, she is uh, feeling quite, you know, positive towards uh, him and and all warm and fuzzy in a way that, uh, you know, we don't often think of Demona being, but, but there she is because, uh, because, wow, it's been working. Something she never thought could happen has been happening and been going really well for 17 years. And even this battle against the English, it's like, hey, all right, we didn't win but we kicked their asses off the field and, and, uh, you know, she would have liked for it to be more definitive, but it was pretty close. Um, so, you know, yeah, she's feeling good. And then <sighs> Bodie's last Bodie. piece of terrible, <laughs> awful, no good, very bad advice. Yeah. Oh, Bodie. <laughs> oh, Bodie. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, you have, this is a tragedy of bad timing. I mean, truly, you know, um, what I've always sort of maintained is that, uh, Macbeth isn't seriously considering Bodhi's plan for a while. He's just trying to teach Luak a lesson about, you got to listen to people. Got to give them a chance to say your, their piece. Even if they're fucking idiots, you let them say their piece. So they feel heard, they feel respected. That's the lesson trying to teach Luak right at the wrongest possible moment. <laughs> the the <laughs> worst, course, uh, for the worst subject, yeah. too. Right, and so, of course, Demona listens and then leaves. She doesn't wait to hear what Macbeth's, you know, conclusion is. She listens and leaves. And in fact, Macbeth's response is going to be, although more measured and calm, very much the same as what Luak's was, which is, this is dumbass advice and immoral and all these things. Um, because Macbeth and Luak are good guys, right? Uh, and Bodhi is just kind of craven, um, always looking for the easier path. And again, I've said this before, I have tremendous sympathy for Bodhi. The worse he is, the more I like him. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
You know, this. I mean, honestly, this, this is Game of Thrones type of stuff before Game of Thrones. I mean, it's great. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, it's very sad. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it just comes down uh, at the wrong moment. If Demona hadn't been listening, if she had stayed to listen for a little longer... Um, all these things would have kind of fixed this problem, but no. And watching this, even back the first time, I never was under the impression that he was ever going to betray her, that he was even considering it. And you had the voice performances, the music, the way things were boarded, all of this coming together to tell a story. But sadly, in recent years, I've run into some fans who felt the need to have things spelled out for them. Some of them, actually, I do run into people who actually do believe he was planning to betray her and are glad that she betrayed him first. And then when you point out what I just said, they said, well, it would have been nice to have that extra minute of confirmation. And I'm thinking, this is a show that trusts you. It trusts its audience. There aren't many of those. And sometimes I wonder if audiences like that or why some executives think that we can't have nice things. <laughs> I've, I've had that argument with people as well. Like the, the, um, yeah, he, he was going to betray her. So she, she did the best thing by doing it first. And I, I just never got that feeling from this. No, I mean, and you shouldn't cause that's just wrong. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, uh, I'm okay with people who sympathize with Demona in this moment, but yeah, uh, it, it is just, you know, she can't trust long enough to even confirm or anything. She just goes, Oh, I knew it. It's going to betray me. They were always going to betray me. It can't be trusted. It's over. I'm switching sides. Well, this is this probably been in her head the whole time, like just waiting for that moment of betrayal. Like, I can't believe that she would even let it go, uh, that it could happen. Right. I think, I think that's true. She, uh, she can't really, uh, see her way clear to, uh, um, believe in what her, even her own experience when it's positive. And that is very real. I've met people like that. No matter how well things are going, they just think it's all going to fall apart or someone's going to stab them in the back. I'm sitting right here. You don't have to talk about me like that. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) And then watching the siege here, I'm thinking about the advantages of animation over live action. You couldn't get something like the Siege of Moray in live action back then without an astronomical budget. Or even today, a lot of those sieges in Game of Thrones' earlier seasons, for example, were off-screen or implied. I mean, this later changed when Weta, Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson had to actually invent new technology for the Battle of Helm's Deep. But this is just... This is only a few minutes, but I feel like that can almost go to toe with any of these big budget quote unquote live action, but they're really mostly CGI battles. Uh, yeah, I I would agree with that. We got some good stuff from Coco. I mean, uh, I mean, there's some moments in this episode that are a little crazy. Like when, um, the lips on Xanatos's armor played (laughs) its face, start moving. (laughs) Um, 
but uh, generally no. speaking, um, you know, it's uh, it's a pretty uh, strong, strongly animated episode, I would say. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, this is this is one of the. You know, I'm trying to remember the was this Coco Studios. Who's Coco? Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't remember. It does, uh, but it is uh, you know the Korean studios. Their episodes are quite often associated with being not as good as the Japanese. This is a, this is an episode where it's really you know it's all throughout the first this, this four parter. The an, animation is actually really good. Uh, it's comparable in many ways. So. Uh, it was a very pleasant surprise. It's, it's interesting, though, when we look at the, the different kinds of animation. This is a very, if you're an artist, you, you, you notice this kind of stuff. But this is something where the designs are very blockish. You know, the, the animation, the movement, uh, they're very solid. When you look at some of uh, the or Japanese studios, you know, Disney Japan, it's more fluid. Uh, there's more of a lyrical quality, quality to it as opposed to something which, like I said, is just very grounded and solid. Uh, you know, it's like gesture drawings versus block versus blocking, really, is what I've seen. If you're an artist, you, you notice that sort of things to it. But they're both very valid. This, this is, like I said, I was very happy to get the quality we got on, on this series, on this particular uh, story, you know, because it is, you know, it's a very strong one. It's a very important one to the series and understanding the characters and why they interact the way they do. So, and then there are the other ones that I won't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> the studios that must Having said that, I think Gargoyle as an overall series stands better than many of you know, as a series as a whole, stands better than say something like even the original Batman had really quite a few conquers in it. I know I've been accused of directing them, so. <laughs> but, uh, I've got Batman in my basement. <laughs> hey, you know, I was just looking at something the other day. People should be thankful for Batman in my basement. Because it has the best Batman mem ever. It has Batman in the corner with thumb sticking up. Okay. Oh um, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've seen that as a, as a mem. Uh, so, yep, yep. <laughs> nice. There you go, the rest of the Batman shows. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Let's talk about Canmore. We can even get in a little, little bit of the history here. What I like about him compared to Gilcom Gain and Duncan is that uh, he seems less evil and sinister and Machiavellian. I mean, there's a little bit of that there. But more angry and and self-righteous, a little bit of misguidedness to him. I mean, I get why he's doing exactly what he's doing. I mean, he's from his point of view, he's avenging his father. He's taking back what was stolen from him. And if you know the history, he was raised in the court of Edward the Confessor, who was a deeply pious man, so I can see how the whole gargoyles or demons, we have to wipe them out, would be an easy thing to sell there. And um, also, a little, somewhat interesting here, as King later on, his second wife, St. Margaret of Scotland, who fled to 
Scotland after William the Conqueror took over England. He, they formally brought the Roman Catholic Church into Scotland, which uh, eliminated the older Celtic Christian practices. Well, that's charming. <laughs> I, I'm not saying he's a good guy. I didn't say that. Oh, no, just... <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just very, you know, history be like that, you know? Yeah, um, with all that entails. Saint Margaret. I don't love these saints. <laughs> but I love that confrontation between him and Macbeth, and Macbeth doesn't recognize him when he takes off the mask. <laughs> uh, should I know who you are? Why do I care what you have to say? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it It parallels that moment between uh, Damone and Gilcom gang uh, two episodes back. You know, it, we've gone from... Uh, you know, uh, for Macbeth, it's because, again, you know, he's facing this adult who he met as a kid, and he doesn't recognize him. Um, and, you know, then he gets it once he's it's spelled out who the guy is. But at first, it's like, oh, oh, you. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, look, all right. Uh, you didn't, you were a kid. You didn't really understand what was going on. Your dad was a son of a bitch. Um so I get why you're pissed off about this, but you really shouldn't be. Um, and uh, that's easy for Macbeth to say, but uh, you know that's kind of kind of where uh, they are in it. You know, it, it becomes this you know kind of problematic little kid has grown up to be an extremely problematic adult. <laughs> um, but that's that army. Mean that, you know, you automatically recognize him. And so just like the Mona didn't recognize Gokom gang, Macbeth doesn't recognize Canmore. So obviously it's way too late. And the fallout between Macbeth and Demona is also such a great scene. The boarding again, the fog, the animation, the music, her standing up on that cliff in front of the moon, eyes glowing. And the performances from the voice actors, I cannot stress that enough either. Marina Sirtis and uh, John Riz Davies. You can, you can hear the hurt in both of their voices. Like, they're both, like, Demona's pissed, but she's hurt. Um, and they both are just, like, at, they're upset, but you can tell that they, like, really were trusting the other person and feel like they were betrayed. And that it's it's a really great scene. Yeah. Um, you know, it... Uh... Uh, I mean, I, I, I love everyone in that scene. I love Grok in that scene. She's, uh, Emma Sam's is Grok is fantastic. And, um, uh, the weird sisters show up, you know, at the end and they're great. And, um, and creepy as hell. <laughs> Super creepy. Um, um and, uh, Oh no, you know, Camel got it wrong. It's not if one dies, the other dies. It's if one lives, the other lives. Um, until, you know. And uh, so finally it's spelled out what their connection is, what the spell did that connected them up, and what that means long term. And then from there, you get the parallel to, we're up on Lunfanen Hill, and you get the parallel to the scene where uh, back in episode two, City uh, of Stone 2, where Macbeth broke up with Gurok for, quote-unquote, her own good, you know? 
um, now she's breaking up with him and telling him he's got to leave Scotland for their son's own good. And he's hoping that by leaving and never seeing his wife and son again, that he will in some way save them. But in fact, what we learn going forward is, no, it didn't save them. Um, Hulak was king, but just for a minute. And Canwall wound up king in the end. And Gurak wound up dying and um, uh, probably, I mean, I think probably committing suicide just to go back finally to Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth. Um, but, uh, you know, rather than be a prize of the new king, someone to show in triumph once her son is gone and her husband is lost to her and her father is dead, I think she uh, takes matters into her own hands. But uh, um, but that's not objective in the show. What What is objective is that, you know, it didn't save them. Um, you know, she says, we can't both abandon our son. You have to leave. <laughs> I love that. I love that. She can tells him he has to go. You need to go. It's for the best of everything. And then she's like, but you're abandoning him and I can't. <laughs> like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like I, I really feel like she's Bodhi's daughter here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is wise. I think that's her, um, her bodiest moment. Um, yeah. Probably, uh, 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 whereas Bodhi, I think, has a nice sort of noble moment here, finally, when he crowns his grandson king, when he sort of steps back and says, okay, we could surrender now. We've lost. I mean, king's dead. But no. We're not going to surrender. We've got a new king. And he puts that crown on Luak, and they're going to go off. And um, I think there are two interpretations of that. One of them, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but one is, is that finally his own kin, you know, his grandson. His own blood, yeah. Yeah, his own blood. Uh, and so you know, is that an ambition he's had all along? Well, maybe, but we've never seen that. It's not like he ever kind of fought to be king himself. And it's not like he really seemed to, uh, determined to have grew off Mary, you know, the king that just ended up working out that way. Um, and then the other motivation is no, uh, if this is the end, I'm going to go out finally like a hero. And I like to think that that's kind of what happened is that, Luak and Bodhi, um, you know, went down the line together uh, until it was over. There's a couple more things to dissect here. I mean, Ken, or despite what I said earlier being righteous, he's still cowardly and craven enough to stab Macbeth in the back. It's not even a fair fight at all. But what I do wonder is, he, like you said, he got the the magic wrong. He misinterpreted it, so... Why are his descendants hunting Demona until the 20th century and maybe beyond? Uh, that has literally not been revealed yet um, in any material that so far has been shown. Um, so but there's a reason I figured it out years and years ago. Um, it's, there's a reason why his descendants are still 
um, hunting her specifically and gargoyles in general. And I think we need to talk about the spell that is linking between them, because I have seen so much confusion over what it is, how much damage they can take. Is it a prophecy? I mean, can he cut their heads off? Can he blow them to bits? And they would just reform like the T-1000. What is the nature of this thing that the Weird Sisters created to link them? Uh, Well, I think they are fated to only die when one kills the other. That is their fate. So until then, whatever wounds that come, they're going to heal. They share each other's pain when they're in close proximity. We've seen that, you know. I don't think, like, if they're a thousand miles apart and Demona, you know, gets hit with a rock that a thousand miles away, Macbeth is going, ow. But if they're close, if one's hurt, the other experiences that pain as well. The big question to me is, is it also true with pleasure? Um, but let's put that aside for the time being. Um, but in terms of the life and death stuff, they are fated to only die when one kills the other. So someone asked me, I've been asked many times, well, what happens if, yeah, they're decapitated? I said, well, but they haven't been. Yeah, but what if they were? And I'm like, well, you mean if Macbeth decapitates Demona or vice versa? No, no, if someone else decapitates them. I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. What do you mean that's not going to happen? What if it did? I'm like, well, but it's not going <laughs> to. Because they're fated for one of them to kill the other and both of them die. That's the fated end for them. So nothing definitive like carving out their hearts or chopping off their heads is going to happen. They could get badly injured, but it's always going to be an injury that at least is theoretically possible to recover from. And the one being alive will drag the other one back into the land of the living. Um, but then at some point, uh, one of them will kill the other, and then they both die. And that's their fate. Um, so you could ask, why hasn't anyone tried to chop off their heads? And I could answer, well, in the last 900 years, maybe someone did try. And just as they were swinging the ax, you know, they got shot between the eyes um, and died. And the ax, you know, just dropped to the side of Macbeth's head or whatever. I mean, I'm making that up. I'm not saying that happened. I'm just saying that the last problem with magical curses is that there's, 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 a certain amount of protection that goes with the curse that protects the curse. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is supernatural in origin. So you'd have to think in supernatural, it just is not going to, unless you could break that, you're, you're never going to break the curse no matter what you try. I, right. I feel like it would probably deal. be very difficult uh, to try to kill either of them anyway. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's true, too. They're, these are two big-time badasses. Yeah. I mean, we've seen them in action. They are not uh, easy pickings, so to speak. They are tough. And uh, given that fact, you know, you're not just going to, it's not going to simply be, um, oh, I, 
I've decided to kill them and I've come up with a method that'll make it worse. Well, A, that's going to be really hard to accomplish. And B, uh, you ain't the first one to try. What makes you think you're going to succeed when C, the prophecy states, this is how they're going to die. Now, there might be loopholes. I mean, look, if you go to the, the original play Macbeth, Macbeth is like, oh, I can't die until Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane. Well, that's impossible, so that's never going to happen. I can't die. uh, I can't be killed uh, by man of woman born. Well, all men are born of women, so I can't die. Well, then, you know, suddenly Burnham Wood is reported marching towards Dunsinane, and Macduff reveals that he was born by Caesarean section. So uh, suddenly it's like all these prophecies that sort of guaranteed my life fade away in Shakespeare's play. Um, that's a spoiler, I guess, <laughs> for a play written in the 17th century. But, um, uh, but again, you know, is there a caveat to this? Well, maybe. That I'm not going to go into. But if it is, it's got to be a caveat of prophecy, you know, of what's fated to happen. It can't just be, well, you know, it has like to work in with the it. prophecy. It can't just right. pop up and yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe you could trick Demona into killing Macbeth or vice versa. Uh, and certainly the whole point of what happens once we get to the present here is what becomes clear. It catches Demona off guard. Demona is sort of, if we get back into the present and the hunter's standing before Demona and she says what most of the audience is thinking, which is that, you know, okay, you might as well take the mask off. It's obvious who you are, Macbeth. So he takes the mask off and he says, I wear this as a symbol um, of your betrayal. And what he doesn't say is also because I thought it would give me a little edge because you'd be on edge seeing this mask. Um, And uh, she says, look, let's not get into it. And she has, Demona Marina has this great line, I blame you, you blame, you know, you blame me, I blame you. It's a very Xanatosian line, frankly. Um, but the part that she's missing is, because she's in there thinking, we can't do anything significant to each other. We can beat on each other, I suppose, for a half hour uh, and make each other miserable. But in the end... What are you going to do? If you kill me, you die too. What she hasn't figured out yet is that he's ready. He's been alive 900 years, and a lot of those years have been pretty damn miserable. And he's seeing what she's doing to the world, and he doesn't want to live in it anymore. And, of course, we can't say this because it's an afternoon cartoon for kids, but in essence, he's suicidal in that moment. Mm-hmm. He is suicidal, and he is ready to die, and the only way he can do that is by killing her or forcing her to kill him. And he and either of those is fine with him. And you can see her whole demeanor change. She's in this very, like I said, almost Xanatosian mode of, yeah, yeah, you blame me, I blame you, whatever. Uh, let's move on until she realizes what his motivation is for being there. And this whole thing about um, revenge is a dish best served cold, 
I've waited 900 years for this meal. That is one cold meal after 900. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Before we fully go back to the present, there's still a bit more to dissect from the end of that flashback, such as, um, before we do that, is there anything else you wanted to say there before? Not for me. I actually have something from before we got, went to the flashback in the first place, which is, I think there's a really cool scene with Bronx that we sort of skipped over. Oh, okay, go on about that. So then we'll flashback. We are, aren't we organized today? <laughs> yeah. Um, I just think that uh, there's this moment with Bronx and Demona that I love because it really illustrates People are always asking, well, just how smart is Bronx? Like, is he a gargoyle that just can't talk? And I'm like, no, he's a beast. He's an intelligent beast. And, and again, he's probably smarter than your average dog, more like, you know, a chimpanzee kind of in level of understanding. Um, but basically, you can see it here. He is smart enough to defend Elisa. You know, he's been told to guard her. He knows a few simple commands from the Goliath and the and the gang, right? He's been told to guard her, so he is guarding her. But Demona throws her weapon aside and starts talking in this soothing voice. Now, everything that she's saying is horrible, but he doesn't get that. <laughs> All he gets is, okay, she's calmed down, so I'll, I'll just stand by Galista and I'm, I'll, I'll back off. And again, he's not getting the content of what she's saying, He's just hearing her tone of voice. Now, Demona being Demona, she starts to work herself up again about how she is going to kill Elisa, at which point he stands up and starts growling again. And she's got to calm her tone down again to get him to chill. And this happens like twice, where Demona being Demona, even though she knows exactly what she needs to do in this moment, she can't help herself and she starts to get angry again, at which point he starts to growl at her. And she has to remind herself to calm down. And that's the idea. It's not that, you know, you can have a conversation with Bronx that he just can't speak back to you about. He is an animal. He is a, a beast. Um, he's a very intelligent beast. He knows his name. He knows a few commands. Um, you know, he probably knows the names of the other gargoyles uh, by this point. Um, because it's been like a year where they've been using them. But, uh, you know, you talk nice to him about your, your evil plans to destroy every human being in the world <laughs> and blow up Goliath in midair and then, you know, use your blaster to shoot Bronx and then destroy Elisa. He's, as long as you're using a nice tone of voice, he doesn't get it. And so, to me, I love that scene because it really illustrated... Bronx's level of intelligence. Definitely, definitely. Anyway, circling back a bit to the flashback, there's a scene that I always interpreted as Lady Macbeth versus Lady Macbeth. They're just that final confrontation between Demona and Gruach. And one of the things that was always interesting to me here is that Gruach delivers the most anti-gargoyle slurs of the entire series here treacherous kin and nightmare memory and had this been catherine or the magus in the pilot or margot or john castaway in the present we'd be hissing them but for a moment we forget goliath we forget hudson and the rest and we're in her shoes that's powerful writing and voice acting in a way a warning of what we can say or do when we are just in the worst places with a destroyed mindset uh yeah i mean i think that's 
all true, you know. Um, you've got uh, someone here who uh, has reason, at least she thinks, to believe the worst. And so she venomously speaks it out because from her point of view, everything about Demona has been um, a, a plague on them. You know, her husband losing his youth, um, her bet uh, abandoning the fight and then betraying them. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's an interesting moment that comes out of that, which is that Demona doesn't kill Grua. And then we've seen in the past, Demona, in the present too, Demona's not shy about killing humans. And here you've got one spouting really hateful rhetoric. And Demona just, you know, she denies it. She doesn't believe Gruach that her clan is dead, or at least not on the surface. But somewhere deep down, she knows that she screwed up one more time. She betrayed Macbeth, and she absolutely believes, no matter what she says, that Canmore killed her clan. And um, so she doesn't kill Gruff because she is chastened. She just runs, which is not unusual for Demona. But yeah, you know, I, it's not Gruff's best moment, but you get where it came from. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just wonderful, and I also want to point out that Back when we had Carl Johnson on, he called this moment to score where Macbeth and Grux say goodbye to each other, his favorite moment in the series. Mm -hmm. And it's really beautiful. The whole thing, the whole scene is really beautiful. Music, just everything. Really um, a touching scene. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the next scene, but um, you already mentioned it a little bit earlier. We see Goliath and Xanatos in the air. First two times this aired the mouth on Xanatos' armor was moving. Thankfully, it was later corrected, but that's just one of those animation errors that I remember to this day because it was so goofy-looking. Well, what's, what's, what's yeah. interesting is that they animated it. Usually, they would love not to animate something. <laughs> they had to do uh, extra they, effort they created, to get it wrong. They created more work for themselves. Yeah. Than but, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, Frank will be upset if we do it right if we, if we don't animate something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. And one of the reasons why I love that line about from Demona, take off that mask, you aren't fooling anyone. I remember as an audience member, I felt really satisfied when she said that. I felt like she was speaking for the audience, too. Yeah. And she kind of was, yeah. And also, Frank, great job with the uh, directing the uh, fight sequences because usually these Corsican connections, which I've seen in other shows, can easily descend into comedy. But here it doesn't. And I like little moments like them wrestling for that lightning gun. Well, it's, it's you know, what makes the action work when you, when you choreograph an action scene is all it's, it's, it's not the big things, it's the little things. That, that make it come to life. You know, like what you just said. Uh, it's, it's just these, these little bits and pieces that, that bring all these big actions together. And one of the things I like 
particularly about this here is that we finally are able to see more of the uh, uh, what lies beneath the castle, you know, in the Erie building, where we get into these big atriums and, and storage spaces and everything it has. You know, it's... Uh, I'm, I'm looking at it right now uh, where they're falling through to the floor through the two you, different you levels. That's the only the time we ever atrium. see that room right under there before we get to the atrium. Well, if, we had, if, if we had had more seasons, I'm sure we would have had a lot more because there's a lot within that headquarters that we had, we had talked about and the idea of designing that uh, just made it interesting. It's like the Baxter building. There's a lot of things in that building that are a mystery. And when you put these things together, I, I, I realized that to, in order to make writers happy, give them something to write about. You know, it would spur their imaginations. And Greg was always really cool with that kind of stuff. You know, and the, again, you know, the, the designs and everything we put together on the show was all meant to be uh, uh, something you could look at and, and see see stuff that, uh, that I, you'd, you'd want to ask questions about and then get answers later on. The only thing here that um, one of the problems I'm looking at here that, that really in issue two of Gargoyle. <laughs> Wait, what happens? Yeah, one of the things I'm I, I'm just looking at this and with a weird sister sh the show that this is one of the things that kind of dates the show is when the weird sisters show up in those mini dresses <laughs> and mini those mini suits <laughs> look like they're, they're out just, of some music so video out of now. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure I saw you know, Kelly Bundy dress like uh, that. Well, I was, yeah, that's probably where I got it from. <laughs> <laughs> I love their design. I still, I still love it. Well, I love the idea that whoever's looking at these sisters sees something that's different. That makes them interesting to me. Uh, it keeps them from being boring. So. Uh, so Xanatos' point of view is the three hot chicks. But it adds another level to their existence that we don't know about. Those big, uh, bulky was, computers. Wow. That was actually, I remember that was a challenge um, to get uh, here and in the previous episode, the, those sort of po point of view moments where um, uh, we had to, like, call for uh, retakes. Uh, asking for that because uh, um, we weren't we weren't getting it, you know, um, and so it was more of an effort than uh, than it should have been to to get that, those moments where you see them as fashion models, you see them as old hags, you see them as gargoyle uh, old gargoyle hags, you know, you see them as little girls, but getting those point of view shots where you see that um, Macbeth is seeing them as one thing and Damone is seeing them as another. And then in the more objective shots, you get that they're either the models or the girls or whatever. But um, that, uh, for whatever reason, that was tough to get that idea across the people. Uh, uh, yeah. I remember we had to, we actually had to go to Tom Ruzica and sort of get permission to ask for it. Um, is what I recall. It's it's, it's 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 one of those things where 
you know, when we look at the visual narrative of a film, uh, we expect to see things a certain way. And so our mind, when you do something that's out of the ordinary, our mind has a hard time accepting it. Uh, especially when you're moving from shot to shot uh, in, in various different ways. Uh, it just doesn't have time to adjust to the surroundings. And so, and, and that's part of the storytelling too. You know, sometimes you want it to be jarring. You want it to have people ask questions about this sort of thing. You want them to be just a little bit confused so they can ask those questions. Uh, Again, it's it's one of the many things I think you know that we did on Gargoyles that uh, that has kept it uh, interesting throughout all these years. You know, it's it's always the subtleties, it's always the little things. It's the big things are nice and they're cool. And I'll say it again: it's it's always those little things that we put in that make these things come to life, and and it makes everybody love them so much. I mean. You know, Demona is a very uh, complex personality. If she wasn't complex, she wouldn't be popular. We didn't have all that, uh, you know, the, the vulnerability, her vulnerability, is, you know, as a person. Uh, she just wouldn't be interesting. Nobody would care about her. You'd make her look as awesome as possible and doing all these wonderful things, but uh, they don't mean anything if she doesn't have substance to her. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and uh, I love also how Macbeth is part of the problem here, not the solution. Xanatos and Goliath need that code to save the city, and to be honest, themselves as well, and uh, they have to stop him from killing her so they can get it, and uh, he doesn't care what's, what happens to everyone else. He just He's wants to die. He's beyond caring. Yeah. He's beyond caring. <laughs> He's tired. <laughs> I, I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it is just so great, and then uh, that also that implication that he's going to impale her on the piece of debris that was just I remember thinking that's dark when I first saw that. I love the little like tink of the light shining off of it. Mm-hmm. Nice, very nice touch. Well, that's that's what has to bring your attention to it. Yeah. It becomes focused. Just that little thing. And you go, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that looks painful. You picture up and it's like, oh, you're not as light as you used to be, Demona. <laughs> <laughs> I do like how the weird sisters show up to talk Macbeth down with assistance from Goliath. Obviously, we know they're playing a manipulation game that will bear fruit later. But I like to think that he does take Goliath's words to heart. That life is precious, vengeance and death accomplish nothing. But he still has a ways to go, as we'll see in Sanctuary and Pendragon, which later show him looking for new reasons to live. But I think they did get through to him, obviously. Well, at heart, he's not a villain. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. I think, you know, yeah, I think they had to get through to him. Or, in other words, they, they can't make him surrender. They can't make him do it. Um, you know, they've got Oberon's laws, which we'll get to down the road. But, you know, in essence, Macbeth has to voluntarily surrender to them. He's got to be exhausted enough and broken enough 
that he just says, fine, take me. I don't, I don't care. Right. Um, so I do think they reach him. Um, and yeah, there's some element of manipulation in there, but it, I think, again, the, the cool thing about the weird sisters is that, um, they have these three personas, uh, faith, vengeance, and grace. And so there's always an element of grace in there that's real. Um, and uh, so I, I think saying that it's inauthentic or manipulative is only half the story, or I guess a third of the story. <laughs> um, when in fact, you know, they, uh, there's also an element of grace to what they're saying. And, but without a doubt, they successfully talk him down because he has to surrender to them. They can't make him do anything. He has to surrender. And the same's true for Demona. We'll get to that, but first, a lot of fans have taken Goliath's words as he's against, I mean, killing people under any circumstances, despite in the pilot saying the kill in the heat of battle is one thing. I feel like some people have gone to an absolute, whereas while he's very reluctant to do it and he won't do it unless... Uh, he has no other choice in the situation. I don't think it's a Spider-Man or Batman-esque psychological need not to. Uh, I would agree with that. I mean, Goliath still was raised in a medieval culture where killing was acceptable, but wasn't, but was frowned upon. You know, in other words, it's like, we don't do this lightly. And I think in being with Elisa over the last year of his life, uh, up to this point, that's even been extended. In other words, it's like, no, that is, that is the solution of last resort. It is not a go-to. And, um, so I, I, I do think that, uh, he's believing if there's another way, take the other way. Um, and none of this is in the heat of battle. None of this is. So there's gotta be another way. Um, killing needlessly is, you know, is a crime, really, in Goliath's point of view. Life is precious. You know, in, in protection and, and, and something where it's justified, you know, where it's not justified, it's not justified. You stop them. You have the power to stop them. You stop them if you don't have to kill. It's, it's really that cut and dry, I think, with Goliath. Uh, it's a waste. And like Greg says, you know, spending the, 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 all that time with Elisa in, in the modern world and everything has, has influenced him greatly. Uh, but he is at heart a medieval uh, creature. And then we have, and I'm kind of sure. <laughs> Go on. I was going to say, yeah, I was looking at the Weird Sisters just up doing Demona as the little girls. And I was just laughing. <laughs> Nice. You know, a psychologist would have a lot of fun things to say about this episode. <laughs> I, I just love her tugging and tugging and can't get out of the grip. It's great. Nice. Yeah, but, I love uh, too. Nice. But building up to that, one of the most memorable, one of the most quoted, and one of the most beautiful me- scenes of Oof, the entire yeah. series. Yeah. The Demona in that trance being talked down with Goli- by the Weird Sisters with Goliath's... Uh, in the middle ha- of the Obsession commercial. 
<laughs> yeah, I was, that's what I, the word I was looking for. It was, it's the obsession commercial. I, I think Brad Rader storyboarded that. He did a fantastic job with that. Oh, fantastic, yes. But, uh, again, very unusual for an action cartoon. And, again, that's you know what we always try to do is, is not to be... Not to give him the unexpected. I hate saying that term because I'm, I'm thinking of obsession commercials. But that sounds like something you hear in one of those commercials. <laughs> but uh, it was very effective here. Who wants to say the yeah. line? Uh, go for it, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, with apologies to Marina Sirtis. <laughs> the access code is alone. What a heartbreaking moment. It, um, and it, yeah. it beautifully delivered, and I, I, it just it gave me it gave me chills. It was so good. Every time, it's, it still gives me chills. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, that line is one that you know I've I've wondered about um, myself, even though I was involved in the making of the show. But it's always made me wonder, I think we even did a contest about it and asked Greg or something, but it's always made me wonder, in her mind, why did she choose that word to be the access code? That's what I've always sort of wondered about. Um, it's a great moment for the series, and it's perfect for her. But she isn't you know, miss self-aware, right? <laughs> you know, um, definitely. So, in her mind, why did she choose that? I think that's a really interesting question. Some subconscious coming out there. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that that's one thing I've been curious about. I've been. I've always been fascinated with is what was the reasoning from her point of view on that choice. But of course the second she comes out of it, it's all everybody else's fault again. I know. I mean, that could have been, that could have been it. Demona could have easily had an epiphany right then and there collapsed to her knees before Goliath, knowing that he would have tried to find a way to help her to deal with it. But then she immediately goes back into into denial. She really did learn nothing. Well, I, okay. So it's not that I think she learned nothing. She refuses to acknowledge it. Refuses to live with what she's learned. Yeah, you know. In other words, I think Demona learns these lessons fairly often in the show. <laughs> the problem <laughs> for Demona is retaining it. The problem for Demona is letting it is sitting with it for any period of time. It's just too painful for her, and so she is forced by her own. Uh, you know, psyche to reject it. She learns it, but she will not internalize it. She refuses to internalize it. And somewhere in there, it's there. It's deep. It is down there. But it is deep <laughs> and it is buried. And she is goddamn determined to keep it buried. She does not 
want that out because she'd shatter. As sure as if you took a, you know, a mace to her during the day, she would shatter under those hits. She can't take them. So she either rejects it, which she does periodically, or even when she has to face it, as she does here, she shoves that down so deep you're not going to find it. Well, like you just said, she'd shatter. And to bring it back to theme, like Lady Macbeth in the play, will these hands ever be clean? I mean, very much I think that uh, Frank and Michael and I, when we talked about Demona, it was like, she is our lady with that. Um, and, uh, Out damn spot. Yeah. I, I loved how I loved how like the second though she says it, Xanatos isn't asking any questions. He's got to save his city, his city. <laughs> I love that it's his city. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. uh, and and he hauls butt back up and throws that in there and stops the countdown. And he is relieved. <laughs> you know? he, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean. This was a moment where it was like, I, I mean, I loved his line at the beginning of the sequence where he looks at the computer, he goes, this is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan's reading that. Because it's like, it's tremendous understatement, right? Like, yeah, this is bad. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, he's got a, um, I mean, what else is there to say? It, this is really grim is what he's seeing at that moment, right? Um, and so, uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's like, they really seem to be missing the point. We've got to see you safe, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, he gets it and it works. And he's Normally really he would relieved. be fascinated by this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. Cause this is interesting shit, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love it. And that whole final scene between Goliath and the Weird Sisters, you already mentioned that Demona wrestling with the child Weird Sisters, which is ne- which will never not be funny to me and also sad at the same time, but it is such a great hook for future stories. I remember the first time I saw this to be honest, I had forgotten about Puck throughout all this drama. I had forgotten about the children of Oberon, so I didn't make the connection until a few days later, they could be the same species. It was just, what are they? Who are they? Why? And me not being able to wait to see what happened next. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, uh, we, and we kind of wanted that. I mean, you know, in other words, in the end, we were going to connect up all sorts of things. We had this plan to do that. But here, it's just Puck's one thing, children of Oberon, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the Weird Sisters, this is a mystery. We don't know who they are yet. Um, and that's fine. Now, later you'll start to see the connection. But in this episode, just let them be what they are, which is strange and unnerving, and, as they say themselves, the story for another day. How about that scene where the skylight's on fire? Frank Kudo saw some job. It looks spectacular. That was tough to get, too. Oh. It, came, it came back from overseas, as I recall, as just the contrails, the various gas contrails lighting on fire and we actually the whole sky right we actually used effects um which in those days was not nowadays not to say that it's easy easy but nowadays you know everything's in the computer and we 
you know, hand things off to our effects animator in post-production, and it's no big deal, really. Um, they have, you know, fire. Okay, make the whole, put the whole sky on fire. But, you know, back then, that was hard. That was a challenge, as I recall. I don't know it if you was one way or the other, but yeah, I probably pushed it out of my brain because you know there's just some shows that I recall. There's a lot of things that we would we could do, but we still needed images and we needed them separate. I think there was a lot of times I would call for them to send over the various levels at times so that we could uh, doctor them ourselves on some things. Uh, easy to do day to day back then? No, not really, because it's just a pain in the ass. Uh, or we had things that uh, they had very primitive. We go into online sites, go into online sessions and I can't even remember the name of the, of the uh, tools that we use. Very primitive computer, really. Uh, uh, just tracking the different kinds of lightings and amplifying them and, and just lots of different things uh, that we could do. Very primitive digital type stuff, but, you know, the, the, the show is very effects heavy. You know, we, 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 we have work all this stuff out in advance and make sure the studios could do it. And sometimes they could and sometimes they couldn't, you know, and we had to right. be prepared with a plan, with a plan B. We had to, either had to cut the bad stuff out or figure out a way to make it work. This is the case we figured out something to make it work. But yeah, it's, none of this was easy. <laughs> I look at it now and it's like it'd be simple you know you, you make anything look really complex but it's so damned easy with all the different things you can do with uh, our digital effects departments now I mean like I said you know I, I, I used to do this shit back when, and then calling retakes if I could fix it on my home computer on my desk in my home computer I would do it if I didn't have to involve anybody else you'd do it uh, but it's come a long way things we can and cannot do. But uh, I, I wish we would have had a lot of those effects type things handy for this series because it's just prize out for the things we could have done, I look at. Right. Uh, you know, I see shows like Arcana, you know, and some of these, some of these others out there, and it's just uh, the things that they're able to do is just mind-blowing, which they could never have done back then. Just never could have done but uh, we always figured out a way to make it work in, in the storytelling you know, so. well art is yeah, forever <laughs> and then everyone turns back to flesh and uh, I love that you brought Sally Richardson in just to say four words Goliath what's going on and then I remembered wait this is the same writer producer who brought Alan Rakins into a spectacular Spider-Man episode just to say no no yep <laughs> Jen I believe you were there I was I was there for that <laughs> he said no and then he left <laughs> <laughs> It was, a, it was a tough gig, but uh, we just felt that word was essential. Uh, but on this, <laughs> no, he I dropped think, the uh, mic and he was out. 
on this. I, I think it was um, just this, we needed that feeling of catharsis. I also think that it's probably also an example of me being a young producer who uh, wasn't always as responsible as I should have been financially. But, um, uh, you know, it, it just felt like we needed it and that there was no way to not have her speak. Um, I, I feel like it was more than one line. I feel like she had three lines. She had this sort of waking up line, and then she turns to Goliath, and then they pick her up, and she laughs and stuff. But, yeah, she didn't have a lot there, but uh, um, what she had was... was uh, Substantial. Fun. Yeah, and, and I think really cathartic for the audience. You know, really um, kind of mattered. Uh, to feel like, okay, Elise is safe. We've heard from her. It's good. I mean, Brooklyn doesn't yeah. talk. We could have had Brooklyn talk because we had Jeff Bennett in the episode. Uh, but Broadway doesn't oh. talk. Lexington doesn't talk. Oh, Brooklyn, doesn't no, talk. no, Brooklyn um, did talk. He said it worked their back. Okay, great. Yeah, so we got that for free because we had him there playing Luwak. Um, and Owen. But, uh, Owen, Owen, yeah. Huh. It's funny that the credits didn't say that. You will forgive me if I just shake your but, hand. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which is a great um, line. <laughs> he doesn't want a hug. <laughs> it's not their it's not their vibe. It's not their style, you know. <laughs> um but you know, it all I think uh it all works out, you know. Nearly 30 years later, no one uh, is sitting there going, uh, hey, how, why'd you spend all that money on that scene? You know, no one cares. So I'm glad I did. Um, <laughs> nice. And then there's um, Goliath and Xanatos' little parting exchange, which I love. <laughs> you come in handy now and then. Yeah. I mean, uh, that was something I also felt like I wanted to do for a while. Um, because uh, I always was paranoid, I guess is a good way to put it, that the audience were like, Zanzos, you know, the gargoyles are stoned during the day. Zanzos has so many opportunities to kill him. Why doesn't he kill him? It's bad writing, you know? And I'm like, no, it's not bad writing. It's who Zanzos is. Like, why be wasteful, right? You know, he doesn't have, he doesn't need to kill them. If they're not in his way you know, then why do it? Um, that's just, you know, he's not in it for vengeance. He's not in it to prove anything. He's got goals. And if you kill them, then you've taken those chess pieces off the table. You can't use them. You can't manipulate them. You can't do anything with them. They're dead. It's wasteful. Right. So that line was kind of important to me because it was sort of like, see, this isn't bad writing. This is who he is. And then, but what I really love is Goliath's life in response, uh, you know, as do something like, uh, what do you say? Like, uh, as do you occasionally, you know, <laughs> keep reading about is so great. You know, it just becomes this, uh, thing where, uh, we get a sense of, uh, what their relationship at least has the potential to be. Um, and, and that's fun. 
Mm-hmm. So, all these years later, these decades later, Greg Frank, how do you both feel about this four-parter as an accomplishment, as a story, all these years later? I don't know. You know, it's difficult because, you know, you know, just speaking for myself, I, I, I know so much more now than I did then. You know, I was just that uh, arrogant, <laughs> you know, imagine a little monster running loose. Uh, I look at these shows and I go, well, this I can, we could have done this, we could have done that. I, I think probably Greg in the same way, we look at things as, okay, well, you know what, maybe we should have tried doing this instead or, or whatever. I mean, I, that's how I look at all my work. Uh, uh, I stand by with a lot of the stuff that we did do. Obviously, I you know, I, it's it, it, this, the, the series has withstood the test of time uh, far more than a lot of its contemporaries have. And uh, that's because of what we put into it. But I can't help but not look at it and go, wow, I wish I could have fixed those things. I wish I could have fixed that timing. I wish we would have had more time to do this. I mean, that just kind of goes with the territory of what we do, though. Well, and then you go on to the next yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel, no, I feel the same way. You know, uh, it all, uh, you know, you see little moments here and there. There are a couple expressions on Goliath's face during the, the Weird Sisters segment where he just has this O-mouth that looks ridiculous to me. And, um, you know, it's like, oh, if only we could have called the retake on that or, you know, uh, something here or there that just doesn't ring true. But I, I will say, for the most part, um, I just have a grand fondness for it all. Uh, I don't feel like, in general, like, uh, you know, if only I knew then what I knew now kind of thing. I, I generally feel more along the lines of, uh, yeah, you know, not bad. <laughs> Um, working out, you know, and it uh, came together and I really do think this four parter came together. Obviously this four parter was pretty seminal for the, uh, series as a whole, particularly, you know, we'd done that big five parter at the start of season one. And then we'd had, we'd done eight episodes to finish out season one. And we'd done eight episodes to open up season two. And some of them are pretty significant and they're all fun, but then this had some real meat on the bone, right? You know, I mean, this um, really had uh, some weight to it. And there were there are all these revelations throughout the four-parter, how Demona got her name, what's the relationship between Demona and Macbeth, um, you know, the introduction of the Weird Sisters, uh, the notion that it's at least possible for Xanatos and Goliath to cooperate when they have to, um, all these things uh, with this history that goes back into, as we talked about with Tuppence, the real history of Scotland in that era, all mixed with Shakespeare's Macbeth, all mixed with our own gargled universe mythology. It, it gives the, the whole series, I think, a heft to it that it hadn't had up to this point. Even with Awakening, I think it gives it uh, something, it brings a real weight to it that I don't think up to that point we had demonstrated 
And I, and that's not to say, look, we had done up to that point, what, uh, 21 episodes before city of stone. Um, and I'm proud of those episodes. Don't get me wrong. And I think they're strong and a lot of them have a lot of meat on their bones too. But this was just, I feel like, um, for Frank and Michael and Gwen and Lydia and I and Jamie and the cast and, and, uh, board artists and, and then what Coco gave us too, um, generally, um, this just took our show to yet another level that I don't think we had reached before. And uh, that makes me proud. Jen, all these years later, how do you feel about this four-parter? I, it just it just reminded me and refreshed everything that I absolutely loved uh, love about Demona. Uh, reminded me of just the depth of the character. Um, she... She's the reason I just kept watching the show. Like, I mean, everything else is great, but if there was one thing I had to pinpoint of why I kept watching, it would be it would be Demona. And this whole backstory, we're getting the history and everything, and I just, every time I watch it, like, there's always something that I, I've seen it so many times, and it just gives me the chills. Um, uh, it, it made a huge impression on me when it first, when I first watched it, and, uh, it's it's probably my favorite. So yeah, yeah, I agree. And for me, also, this was especially the first time I watched it way back when. I've been watching a lot of action shows. I'd seen a lot of movies and things, and I enjoyed them all as entertainment and everything. Very entertaining. There was a lot of things I loved. This was just at the time for me a revelation. The idea that. This could be beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. I had never quite seen anything like it, especially in an animated series. And it's just, uh, it really made me embrace the power of storytelling. And uh, all of a sudden I started paying attention more in English class, doing more of the work. And uh, I majored in English. I went to film school. Now some of this stuff didn't quite work out because you know it's always a gamble but honestly i don't think i'm exaggerating when i say it had a huge impact on my interests the person i became and um city of stone was no exaggeration it was in a way it was life-changing for me and i thank you both for that it even got my ex-husband to dress up as Macbeth. okay Uh, yeah, it, it 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 was great, and thank you guys so much. Um, it, it just so well done. Uh huh. I have one other moment I want to talk about. Yeah. All right, back it up. Let's go. And I we skipped it. Um, there's this great moment when um, Goliath is trying to split up the fight between Demon and Macbeth, and they both punch him. I, I love it. I have it in my notes, and I freaking love that moment. <laughs> I think she was like, guys, guys, um, be I reasonable. Just, and they're both like, shut up. <laughs> it's like that simple thing. Even like, the way it's trying. animated, it's just great. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that because I really like that moment. All right. And since this is our last show for the year for 2022, and this is a question for you both, um, uh, the state of the franchise, Gargoyles, it's changed a lot since this podcast first started. As I recall, when we recorded, we were still waiting for the first NECA figure to come out, and 
what do you, what are your thoughts on the state of the franchise now? One thing I do think twenty twenty three is going to be a big test. Uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of amazing. Um, I think that uh, the response to the book. I mean, you know, one hundred eighty six thousand pre orders. That's just insane. Um, it's crazy. Uh, Mind blowing. Pre-orders for issue two already yeah. sold out in places. Um, and I'm sitting here going, you know, you look at the back of the book and there's a cover gallery and you count them. There's 78 covers. 78 covers. That's just crazy. <laughs> and I know that the main reason the pre-orders, I mean, I know that's the main reason the pre-orders are as high, but, it, but it, what it does say is that, you know, a lot of those additional covers were because the book was selling. And the book was selling because there is a tremendous fondness out there, not just among hardcore fans like the four of us, um, but, you know, a nostalgic um, love of the show that really cut across the board. I'll, I, I want to give Dynamite all sorts of credit for getting the word out, you know, really. Um, because, you know, I, I, I do see on Twitter, like, every day someone's going, wait, there's a Gargoyle comic? And you're like, how did you miss this after this point? But, yes, there is. But, I mean, they've got a lot of people interested in it. And, um, and you know, that's a credit to the, the old show. Um, then, you know, the covers build on that. You see previews of George's gorgeous uh, pages, and that builds on it. I like to think that my participation helps at least a little. But um, <laughs> it, it really is kind of mind-boggling, that number. You know, that pre-order number is just kind of nuts. Uh, in a good way, good way, not but still crazy, crazy. Um, and yeah, the NECA figures and the other toys that I've seen coming out sporadically in the board game and, and the announcement that they're going to reissue the Sega game. Um, is that right? Did I hear that? Or am I making, yeah, yeah. they're going to, they're going to, uh, uh, rework it. And then re-release it. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. And, you know, and again, the fact that it's on Disney Plus is huge. It really is huge. I have no idea, you know, those are proprietary numbers. I have no idea how it's doing on Disney Plus at all. But the fact that it's at least viewable uh, is incredible. And I know that... Um, you know, a lot of this is going to be based on ongoing sales for Dynamite, but I know Dynamite's plan is to also uh, eventually release um, reprints of the Marvel Gargoyles uh, comic book run um, by Amanda Connor and, and Mar Marty Pasco, um, uh, which we don't consider canon, but then eventually to also do the SLG run, which we do consider canon including Gargoyles and Gargoyles Bad Guys from, the, you know, those 18 SLG comic book issues. And all of this is like, you know, if you told me two years ago that this was all going to happen, I'd be like, yeah, it's my dream. But it's happening. And it's fantastic. And what that 
means for down the road, well, you know, I guess the sky's the limit. I don't, I'm not a guy who tends to get his hopes up, but you never know. The, the odds are greater for than against at this point. So that's what I would say. It all depends on, you know, if people keep continuing to buy the comics, if they continue to buy the, the toys, uh, continues to get attention. Uh, that's, uh, that's always a good thing. It's always a positive thing. I think you uh, underestimate yourself when you say that, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you didn't have a lot to do with this stuff. You've always been in the corner of the show for the past 30 years. And it's quite amazing the thing that you've done in keeping the series, uh, the thing alive. So we all thank you for that. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. uh, the truth is, I yeah, I have tried. Uh, it, it's been a sort of circular, mutual thing. I mean, what's been great is there's always been this great fan base people like Greg and Jennifer, for example, who um, have made me feel like it's worth fighting for. And so I fight for it. Um, and I lose a lot of battles, but we win a few, too. And um, Well, you've never uh, backed down from a fight. Up. I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. Witnessed that one myself, too. Shut up! <laughs> but um it, it, but yeah it, you know i i love fighting for gargoyles I, you know i mean i love doing anything with gargoyles just because uh it was a obviously a seminal time in my life for one thing but also it's work that um that i'm really proud of i'm sure uh uh, Frank is too. I mean, and so many people worked on it and we produced something that, uh, has really stood the test of time. I mean, it really has. I mean, it, it's a, it, it's, it, it's of its time, you know, it's definitely set in the nineties. You can tell by the dresses that the weird sisters are wearing, I guess, but, um, you can definitely tell by the lack of cell phones, but, um, in issue one, Elise is carrying a beeper, a pager, you know? uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> because it's 1997 in issue one. But, uh, uh, but what it means is, but, but really fundamentally, you know, it wound up being a pretty timeless property. And, uh, and the work we did, I think has, you know, largely really stood the test of time. It's still a really good looking show. It's really well written. It's the acting is, really incredible. Um, and, uh, you put all that stuff together and you've got something worth fighting for. And so the fans have made me want to do that because they've been fantastic. We just, Stargirls has the best fans on the planet. And, uh, before we say goodbye, is there anything you two would like to plug? Well, I got this book that came out today, Gargoyles Number 1 from Dynamite <laughs> Comics. I guess I'll plug that. I don't know if I mentioned it. Don't know if I mentioned it today, but uh, but yeah, I guess I'll plug that. Um, and uh, likewise, uh, uh, Young Justice Target number six comes out later this month. Uh, it's already out electronically, but uh, it comes out in print, the full version, um, later this month. And and I hope you've been picking up uh, 
Young Justice Targets. Uh, it's the last of uh, the six issue miniseries this month. They finally announced a trade paperback too. Did they? That's great. Yes, I'm, it's available for pre-order on Amazon. I've already put mine down. On that note, keep binging Gargoyles. Ha- no, hashtag keep binging Gargoyles. Hashtag keep binging YJ. Hashtag save Earth 16. And Frank, is there anything you want to plug? Well, well, you know, I just recently did a a book cover. I don't really go down much in paintings because it's... I, it's hard to it's hard to do final work on a painting when you're used to doing just sketches. But uh, my brother put out this book called Castle Gates. It's kind of a fantasy piece, and he asked me to do the cover for it, and so it's, I did that. It's it's, on, it's an Amazon piece. But if you want to see me doing something that's non superhero, there's a full the full illustration, then you can find it there. And aside from that, I have lots of things, but nothing I can talk about. So, super secret. Nice. We'll we'll That'd link to the book. We'll link to the book in the show notes. And to our audience, I do want to thank you for listening. And just so you know, we are going on a brief hiatus. We're going to be back full time by March at the latest, mostly because we still have some. Shows we want to record, we want to build up a bit of a backlog, but we might have a couple of shows for you in January, maybe February as well. We'll see what happens and how things work out, but I'm sure I can speak for Jennifer when I say that you guys have been terrific. The response to this show has been overwhelming, and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks for having us. Oh, and thank you guys so much. You guys make us so much much better than it would be if just Greg and I were sitting here talking at each other. <laughs> Which we have done ad nauseum over the, the, the decades. So. <laughs> but thank you guys so Late much. Late into the night. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, for being here. Take and, care. Uh, Everyone have a great holiday. Have a happy new year, and we will see you next year. Take care. Happy holidays, everyone. You too. The access code is alone.